like to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The message today is a little bit of a part two of what Dr. Saxon preached a couple weeks ago on the theme of eschatology and the questions that come with that. And I'd like to just read the text this morning to orient ourselves to exactly what we're going to be talking about today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers and he says, He says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh on them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort, your, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. I love the topic of eschatology. I know that marks me out as a little bit of a minority in Christianity. Uh, but the eschatology is simply the study of end times. God has given me the opportunity in local church ministry over the last 10 plus years of preaching through the book of Revelation and the book of 1 Thessalonians. I've also taught an adult Sunday school class recently through the book of Revelation. And of course, at the university, I teach courses on the topic. I teach Daniel and Revelation, and I also teach every semester, I teach a section of eschatology in my doctrine class. So literally, I've spent hundreds of hours of teaching on the topic of eschatology, and I have discerned that there is one question that dominates all of the other questions. Now, there's lots of questions that come in eschatology, but there is one primary, persistent, and present question that oftentimes comes during this discussion. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, people want to know, when is Jesus coming back? That is not the big question. What about who is the Antichrist? That is also not the big question. The big question is this. Why does it matter? Why does eschatology matter? And as I, as I inform you that that is the big question that I have discerned in all of my time teaching on this topic, it's probably not a surprise to you because chances are many of you, if not every single one of us at times, have thought the exact same thing. Why does eschatology matter? It's confusing. There's charts. There's graphs. There's so many different interpretations, so many different perspectives. We can't possibly understand it, and it probably doesn't even matter to begin with. Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to preach the passage today. I think that Paul writes the paragraph 
that we are discussing this morning to answer the big question. In his concluding verse, notice verse 11. He begins with the word wherefore. It is a, it is a wrap-up word for this reason. Everything I've just taught you, for this reason. And then he gives two practical purposes for everything he has just taught. He says, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. The word comfort can mean to exhort or to encourage. And I think that's the idea here, to encourage, to, um, to, to help people to be, be comforted about reality that is important for us to understand. And then the other word, edify, is a construction word that means to build up. And so these kind of dual purposes are the purpose for eschatology. And this verse leads us to a few significant implications. First of all, I want you to notice that this, this word uh, to edify and to, um, and to encourage, these words are commands. These are given to us as imperatives. We are commanded to encourage and to edify. Another implication is that if we are going to encourage and edify, then we need to know the truth that Paul is teaching here. You cannot encourage anybody. You cannot edify anybody if you have no idea what he is talking about. And so our encouragement and edification need to be anchored into the truth. And Paul says that these believers in verse 11 are already doing this in their life because, and we see this, we'll see this in our passage, they already perfectly know many of these truths. Another implication is that the word edify is combined with a reflexive pronoun. It's translated just simply as one another. So the point is this, is that it is not the job of theologians to edify It is not the job of pastors to encourage. It is the job of you to do this for one another, to be engaged in the body of Christ, to have an awareness of the truths that are given to us, to take seriously the command that we are given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I need to be engaged in this encouragement and edification of my fellow believers on eschatological truths. And so the point of this text, and really what I want to hone in on in my sermon, is this simple point, that eschatology matters. Eschatology matters. Paul's concluding command leads us to a very simple two-point outline. Number one, use end-time truth to encourage one another. And number two, use end-time truth to edify one another. Let's jump right in. Verses one through five. Use end-time truth to encourage one another. We should be encouraged that the day of the Lord is knowable. So in the previous section in chapter 4, Paul taught about the future resurrection of all believers that, that happens at the rapture. All church-age saints are caught up together with Christ to meet the Lord in the air. And now he identifies that, that events, the events that immediately follow that catching up. And the events that immediately follow that are, are noted here as the day 
of the Lord. And I would suggest to you that the day of the Lord was already a well-known topic to the Thessalonian church. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to discourage you. And so I want to say it with as much grace as possible, not just for you, but also includes myself. Shame on us. Shame on us for treating the topics of eschatology so flippantly. Shame on us for not knowing the words of Jesus. Shame on us for not knowing a consistent message in the Old Testament scriptures. These Thessalonian believers had been saved only a relatively short period of time. Their church was a church plant under a year old, probably. These people had not been saved for long, and yet the Apostle Paul tells us that they had knowledge about this topic. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write to you. For yourselves know perfectly. That word perfectly means accurately, involving both detail and completeness. You know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Do you know what the day of the Lord is? Now, if I were to ask you, have you heard about the day of the Lord? You'd probably all say yes. If I asked you, do you kind of know some kind of scattered concepts that might be a part of the day of the Lord? You might say yes, but, but the day of the Lord is a well-established biblical theme. And, and it en- encompasses the entire program of God's end-time purposes. It begins at the tribulation, the, the, the 70th week of Daniel. It begins at the seven-year tribulation. It encompasses the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it goes all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom as Christ establishes his rule and reign and ushers us in to the eternal state. So all of those important, key, significant aspects of end times truth are included in the day of the Lord. Jesus speaks of this day. Peter writes of this day, and of course it is found throughout the Old Testament. In in this passage, as Paul addresses the Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is speaking most directly about the very first part of the day of the Lord. The tribulation. The great tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble. This is a very significant prophesied event that God was going to use to to judge the world and also to call a people out for his namesake and fulfill his promises to Israel. And so what did the Thessalonians know about the day of the Lord? Well, they knew that it would come like a thief in the night. You're like, wait a second, wait a second. I always thought thief in the night was descriptive language of the rapture. No, it's actually descriptive language of how the day of the Lord will come. And, and if, you're, if you're thinking to yourself, well, how does that relate to the rapture? Well, the rapture happens immediately preceding the day of the Lord. The rapture of the saints, the harpazo, the catching up to be with Christ in the clouds, that is an imminent event which means that we're not waiting for special signs or we're not seeing things that are like, okay, we can now count from this point and, and we know that it's only three and a half years until this particular... Like, like 
Christ could come back for his, for his saints at any moment. The day of the Lord is also imminent, which means that it is closely associated with the rapture as, as the church is caught up together with, to be with Christ in the air. Um, there is an imminent an event that, that rapidly follows that called the day of the Lord where the inhabitants of the earth are going to be caught in the trap of God's judgment. And so these believers knew that it was coming like a thief in the night. This metaphor is taken from Jesus Christ's teaching in Matthew 24 and in Luke chapter 12, and it pictures swift and imminent judgment. The day of the Lord could begin tomorrow. It could happen at any time. And so there is an expectation of that. They also knew that the times and seasons would not be revealed. They knew that, that this is not something that they should seek for. The disciples of Jesus had specifically asked Christ about the timing of his return, about these events and the culmination of them, and, 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 and until the point where Jesus was about ready to ascend to the Father, and they asked him one more time, And we see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. When therefore they were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And so I would submit to you this morning that all of this is knowable to us today. And we should be encouraged to follow the Thessalonians' example of of being interested and being aware of what Scripture has taught about these important themes. But we should also be encouraged that the day of the Lord is not judgment for us. If you know Christ today as your Savior, then the day of the Lord is not judgment for you. We see this unfolded very clearly in the next several verses, verse 3. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light, the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. And so from our text this morning, there are three indications that we will not enter the tribulation judgments. The first indication is that the pronouns that are used in these verses are very clear. There is the them and there is the you. And those are divided very clearly between the lost and the saved. The tribulation will come upon them and they shall not escape. But that day will not overtake you. Paul makes that point very clear. Unbelievers will face a time of wrath at at, at a point when they have achieved comfort that is described as peace. And peace probably is speaking of their their inner peace. They feel good inwardly. They, They feel at rest. They feel secure. And then safety speaks of being free from external threats. They feel like Like things have calmed down and things are good and we've as a people figured out things so that that, that there's no danger that is coming. 
And then we see that the destruction will come upon them like labor pains. I've never been pregnant. You're like, whoa, all right. Somebody's tweeting that out right now. So. But, but here's one thing I know. In fact, I think if any of us have been paying attention, we know that this, that when a woman is pregnant and she goes into labor, that, that there's no stopping. There's no, like, redo on this whole thing. And, and that, 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 the, that the birth, that the completion of the process is right around the corner. And so the, the point that, that we are making here is that this is destruction that will come surely um, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And, and I want you to notice that this is a theme that we find even in the Old Testament. Listen to this description from Isaiah. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 9. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. And they shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. And so that is the first indication that the tribulation is not for us. It is for them, but we you are excluded from it. The second indication that we will not enter the tribulation is the use of the word overtake. We see that in verse 4, but, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. This word means to make one's own, and it indicates that that day, the day of the Lord, will not lay hold of the believers that Paul was writing to, believers in the church. And the third indication that we will not enter the tribulation is the promise that is given towards the end of this passage in verse 9, that God hath not appointed us to wrath. We are not only saved from eternal wrath, but in this context we are saved from tribulation wrath that is described in verse 3 as sudden destruction that will come upon them. This is the Pauline term that is not used for final damnation, but as one commentator defines it, he says it is utter and hopeless ruin, the loss of all that gives worth to existence. And so there's this massive contrast. Unbelievers who go into the tribulation judgments will face destruction. That is, that their world of peace and safety that they've been so sure about, that they've been so confident in, is shattered. And there is utter hopelessness. There is no escape. And there is, there is an upheaval of all that they have known because God is at work in the earth. So eschatology matters. First, use end-time truth to encourage one another. Eschatology is noble, and we should encourage each other with the truths that we find in Scripture. And one of these encouraging truths is that the tribulation wrath is not intended 
for us. But secondly, this morning, we need to use end-time truth to edify one another. We are commanded, according to verse 11, to build each other up. And the basis of our mutual upbuilding are the exhortations that Paul gives in verses 6 through 10 that are directly related to the events of the tribulation. So we see that we are challenged by Paul to be spiritually alert. Notice in verse 6, it says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And so the word asleep right here is a moral word. It speaks of moral laxity, of, of apathy, of, of kind of of a Christian who's saved and then struggles and then kind of gives up the struggle and is kind of floating in their Christian life. And the Apostle Paul says that should mark, not mark us as believers. That is something that others do. That is the category, that is the status of unbelievers. Instead of us falling into those patterns, which we can all so easily do. You're like, whoa, 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 woo! Dr. Brock, wait a second. This is Maranatha Baptist University. This is a place where we come and we are, we are ignited with, with the truth of the Word of God. Our devotional life has never been better than when we've been here. We have so much free time on our hands, we spend it, and I, I just lost you, free time. At Maranatha, you can fall asleep spiritually. You graduate from Maranatha, and now you're like, okay, now I can get back on track. And you get into a local church, and you get a job, and you get married, and you have kids that are on the way, and all of a sudden you find yourself saying, okay, well, when the babies are born, or when they're a little bit older, I can get back on track. And I'm just going to suggest to you that there is no point of the Christian life where we are not tempted, where we do not have very real impulses of our flesh and our laziness to just coast from a spiritual perspective, but, but that should not describe us. Verse 7 describes the people that are identified that way. They that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. Those are unbelievers who do unbeliever things because it comes from unbelieving character. That's very interesting on this point that some Christians reason that if we're going to escape the tribulation, then why does it matter how we live? Oh, I, I'm not, you know, hey, I'm saved. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to face any of the, I mean, the rapture is going to catch me up and everything is going to be great. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. Jesus is coming. And, and some people would argue that that actually, that actually removes the urgency for godly living. And because of that, there's been some different teaching on the tribulation that I think is intended to, to kind of put pressure upon us. And so there are some people that teach that only the spiritual will escape the tribulation. Man, woo, that would be a powerful sermon. 
Jesus could come back at any moment. And if you are not on fire for God, you will be left to face judgment. The rest of us spiritual people will feel sorry for you. Ooh, let's have an invitation. Okay, that, that, is, a, that is a foreign teaching to Scripture. What about this one? And I've heard somebody, I, I've, I've had believers confront me with this before. They would say, oh, if you believe in the rapture, then, then what reason is there for you to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, to develop the character that can withstand any trial? And, and then the person looked at themselves, they're like, I'm ready for the tribulation. I'm spiritually ready. I'm spiritually strong. When the tribulation comes, I'm going to be in it, and I'm going to stand for Jesus. As if the only spiritual people are the ones who believe the church will be in the tribulation. They cannot fathom that the privilege that we possess as being in Christ, the privilege that is described in this passage as not being appointed to wrath, they cannot fathom that that would have any positive impact on our moral resoluteness. But that is exactly what Paul is exhorting us when he says, therefore, let us not sleep. You're not going to go through the tribulation, but you're not one of those people. You're not identified with them. Therefore, let us not sleep. Wake up. And by the way, this is the same tension, this, this identity tension. This is the same thing that Paul addresses in Romans 6. After he has just written, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, he immediately recognizes that some people will say, oh, whoa, whoa, if, if when sin abounds, grace much more abounds, then, then we should continue in sin that we can have so much more grace. And Paul says, I understand why you might think that. But he said, that's not who we are. And if that's not who we are, that's not how we think. And if that's not how we think, that's not how we live. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so we know that spiritual transformation flows from spiritual identity. And true believers are identified in this passage as children of light and children of the day in verse 5. As one author says, He says, inattention to spiritual priorities is utterly out of keeping for those who will not be subject to the coming day of wrath. So because we are saved from wrath, we should engage in in the spiritual disciplines. And and one of these disciplines is given to us in verse 6. We are told to watch. That word points to a constant Readiness and can be used in a general sense of, of being watchful for temptation. And so our devil, our, the, the, the devil is an adversary walking around, and so we need to, we need to be watchful for temptation. But, but it can also be used, and I think the focus in this passage is that it is specifically watching for Christ's return. This is a theme in the New Testament. And this is an area where I'm going to be honest with you. I have gotten spiritually lazy. And probably so have many of you. How many of you are watching for Christ's return? How many of you are eagerly anticipating? 
How many of you go into a Monday thinking Christ could come back this week? I want to be ready. I want to be watching. It's my Savior who is coming back. Throughout Scripture, the admonitions to this are abundant. 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. 2 Peter 3.12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Believers, watching for Christ's return is not a scare tactic manipulation. Jesus calls us to watch for him. It is our privilege as believers. There are snapshots in my mind of moments throughout life that I will never forget. And probably the number one snapshot happened on December 18th, 1999, when I stood at the altar of a church in Warren, Michigan, and I knew what was happening, and I knew what was coming, And and before anyone stood at the back, I was watching. I was waiting. I was anticipating. Oh, well, you were just so full of fear. Nope. I knew her love for me could not be thwarted. (laughs) Yes. The doors parted, and there she was, was watching. Why do we watch for Christ's return? Because we want him to return. Because he's our savior. He's the one that died for us. He's the one that gives purpose to life, and he's the one that we cannot wait to have ongoing, eternal fellowship with throughout eternity, and and that's our perspective, and that's where we come to in this passage, and it is such a healthy thing to consider Christ's return and us going to be with him is such a healthy thing for our spiritual hearts and minds as we seek to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we also will appear with him in glory. And so we also see here that that connected with our watchfulness, we should be spiritually alert in sober-minded self-control. Verse 6 connects that word sober, which is the concept of self-control. And that leads us, this watchfulness, this self-control, disciplined Christian life leads us to the necessity of the spiritual armor that is given here. And and spiritual armor is a theme we're aware of, but I want to touch upon a couple key points. In verse 8, Paul says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Breastplate of faith and love, these describe the core commitments to our God and to be transformed by our God 
that happen within our salvation. I believe him in daily decisions. I believe him for the future. I trust him. I follow him. I let him transform my perspective about all the people in my life so that I'm seeing them now with the heart of Christ. But the one that's interesting is the one that comes after that to put on a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so the helmet that we put on here is the hope of salvation. Since we're already saved, this does not mean get saved, but rather it means that we think about the gospel and its promised impact on our future. And that is described for us. And so hope of the gospel is something I think we can get our minds around, but Paul just tells us exactly where he's going with this. One aspect of the hope of salvation that we've already seen is our removal from the coming time of wrath. So we put on the spiritual armor, the hope of salvation. In verse 9, it's described that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that truth, and we believe that truth, and it, it is a necessary perspective as we live in such uncertain times in an uncertain world that we have this certainty. But another aspect of the hope of salvation is our certainty that Christ's death is sufficient. Notice in verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now it's possible, and, and some commentators take it, that this is a tieback to the theme of chapter 4, that all church saints, whether living or dead, would be resurrected to be with Christ at the rapture. However, verse 10 uses the same Greek words, watch and sleep, that we saw earlier in verse 6. And they are different from the Greek words for asleep in chapter 4. And so either Paul is repeating something he has already made crystal clear, or he is making a new point related to the exhortation that he just gave for us not to sleep, but let us watch. So what if a Christian is not watching for Christ to come back? Or what if a Christian is struggling spiritually or giving in to apathy? I believe the point is, is that we are not saved from wrath because we watch like we ought to watch. We're not saved from wrath because we have achieved a certain level of self-control, faith, or love. We are saved from wrath because Jesus died for us. We are not motivated that somehow we have to achieve a certain level in order to arrive with Christ. We are motivated, rather, that in Christ we have everything that we need to be caught up together with the Lord in the air, to bypass the wrath of the tribulation and beyond. We have everything that we need in Christ, and that in and of itself is motivation. I don't know about you, but that motivates me to live for him. That's because the hope of salvation is a part of our spiritual armor. I'm not doing anything in my Christian life so that I can achieve a little bit more from God. I have everything that I need in Christ. And that reality overwhelms me. And that motivates me. And it teaches me that I am a son of the light. And therefore I should walk as a son of light. 
And so I put that truth on. And it helps me as I live for God and as I work out the spiritual disciplines. This is not externalism. This is internalism. This is the reality that everything that I need is in Christ. It's the second verse of the hymn, My Faith is Found a Resting Place, states, Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him He will never cast me out. And so Paul then wraps up all of this truth back in verse 11 where we started. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. And so, believers this morning, use end time truth to encourage one another. And use end time truth to edify one another. Are you building others up by challenging them to be watchful for Christ? To make that theme dominate their perspective and their hope? To be self-controlled and to put on the armor of faith and love and, and the hope of salvation that is a central theme in this passage? That is why eschatology matters. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you for bringing us to the point by the work of the Spirit of God, by the conviction of our sin, that we would turn from our sin and trust Christ alone for our salvation. Lord, thank you for the promises that we will escape the wrath that is to come. May that motivate us. May we get our heads and our hearts around this truth. May we be encouraged And may we be built up in our faith. And may we take what you are doing in us. And may we encourage and build up those around us for your glory. Help us to remember that your word is profitable. Eschatology is profitable. It matters. We commit this to you in Christ's precious name. Amen.